0: Thank you for joining me again and listening to this podcast that I enthusiastically have titled Recovering Through Highness. Everything in this podcast has some reference to recovery, but I'm going to answer a question that I received from someone based on spirituality today. Please send your questions, ideas, and insight to recoveryecosystem at gmail.com. Come and join my podcast at recoveryecosystem.podbean.com. Again, my email, recoveryecosystem at gmail.com. Spirituality for me is what eventually gave me a meaning to life as the spirit, according to the English dictionary, is based on our understanding of our existence that defines a set of morals that will tell us how we address things that come our way in life. I am not religious, but instead spiritual, which has allowed me to embrace a relationship with God. I have no interest in convincing others to believe as I believe, nor arguing my belief as I hold this strong to myself. If you're an atheist, that's no problem with me, as God has no interest in forcing a relationship on anybody, as free will is the gift that was given to us. Atheism was where it began, but I'm going to delve into the topic and an explanation of things based on my limited knowledge. How do we reach the unreachable? And the Bible gave me answers that I want to share, but I want to begin with the individual who declared that God is dead. Have you not heard that the madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then. He provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? Asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? Asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? emigrated thus they yelled and laughed the madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes whither is god he cried i will tell you we have killed him you and i all of us are his murderers but how did we do this how could we drink up the sea who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon what were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun whither is it moving now whither are we moving away from all suns are we not plunging continually backward sideward forward in all directions is there still any up or down are we not straying as through an infinite nothing do we not feel the breath of empty space has it not become colder is not night continually closing in on us Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? Gods too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. This is an excerpt from the Gay Science in section 125 that was entitled The Madman from Friedrich Nietzsche, who's always been quoted from his writings that God is dead. What did he mean by this? This is truly a paradoxical context, and he was extremely educated on the Bible. God can't die physically, but his view in Western civilization during the Period of enlightenment was that religion was drastically declining as important and it lost its central place. And this is true as we see in politics, philosophy, science, literature, art, music, education, everyday social life, and the inner spiritual lives of individuals. Things have drastically changed when we look at history. Bach's Mass in B minor, the artwork of the Renaissance like Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, scientists like Descartes and Newton, all had religious inspirations, and education systems were also governed by the church. The vast majority of people attend church regularly throughout their lives, and this has changed as our culture is becoming more secularized. The scientific revolution that began in the 16th century soon offered a way of understanding natural phenomena that attempted to prove superior to the attempt to understand nature by reference to religious principles or scripture. A technological power by science gave people a sense of greater control over nature, and God is Dead is not just a claim about a religious belief. In his view, much of our way of thinking carried religious elements that we're not even really aware of. His assumption is that there is such a thing as what we call objective truth, and for Nietzsche, all knowledge has to be from a limited perspective. For thousands of years, the idea of God has anchored our thinking about the world. And it's defined our morality, the moral principles that we follow. You know, don't kill, don't steal, help those in need, Had the authority of religion behind them. And religion provided a motive to obey these rules, since it told us that virtue would be rewarded and vice versa, punished. So what happened When this rug is pulled away, Nietzsche seems to think that the first response is going to be confusion and panic. The whole of the madman that I had mentioned is full of fearful questions. A descent into chaos is seen as one possibility. But Nietzsche saw the death of God as both a great danger and a great opportunity. It offers us the chance to construct a new table of values and one that will express a newfound love of this world and this life. for one of Nietzsche's main objectives to Christianity is that in thinking of this life as a mere preparation for an afterlife it ultimately devalued life itself. And this is a concept of the philosophical approach of existentialism which is to say that life is short, you will die and one of the greatest struggles of humans are to define a meaning to life. Now Nietzsche eventually went insane as he got older because of his struggles to believe that we have a purpose a meaning or even a place in existence. And as I mentioned earlier, I am not religious, but have delved into spirituality, which did provide me a relationship with God. Nietzsche was a believer in God, but as a result of part of what I think in terms of the hypocrisy behind words and actions of Christians and the importance of the teachings within the Bible that no longer seemed important. And this was, of course, as Enlightenment had f- allowed you to define your own values and morals that were based on your free will and he concluded that God is no longer needed and that we ultimately killed him. Now my understanding of the Bible which I have vastly studied has confirmed his metaphorical statement as Christians will pick and choose what is important and they'll disregard the things that don't fit their agenda. People that live with the view of of Nietzsche developed the defining moment between spirituality and philosophy. Philosophy, as explained through Nietzsche, are viewing things through an objective reality, where spirituality is explained through a subjective reality. Let's Get Spiritual was the name of one of my chapters in Pain, Failure, and Misery are the Stepping Stones to Success. And I wrote this because of one of the most common excuses for people to avoid the 12-step program. And ultimately, find a meaning to their life, which I'm going to talk a little bit about. I was introduced to the 12-step program when I was 16, and I discredited the program because of my atheistic view on life. My book which has received some criticism because of certain religious people that believe that God is the only way to stay clean and sober. And I'm going to agree that the moment things changed for me was when I did allow God into my life and asked for the help that I needed. But God is not going to do for you what you can do for yourself, which is why I think that statement that God is all you need can ultimately be very dangerous everything about my book is grounded in concepts that i learned through faith but I asked myself some very difficult questions that were related to the ability to reach those who don't have real faith and the kind of faith that is very genuine. My abuse of meth led me down a path that literally made it impossible to believe in a God that stood so strongly against a life that I was living, which ultimately made it easier to attempt to discredit the existence and live the life that I wanted with no concern of repercussions. So how? How do we help an individual find a solution with the solution being something that they don't believe is real? The answer for me came through a source that identified my lack of faith as a way to ultimately find faith. So I was scheduled to speak at the Mount of of Church in Mission Viejo before this coronavirus hit, and I'm hopefully going to reschedule fairly soon. This podcast is unique in that I rarely speak of my faith in God because I've always had a drive to reach the unreachable, and those that many... Have thrown away. And why are many thrown away? Because the solution is told that God is the only way, and without Him, you will fail. But again, how do you force a solution that isn't real to people? And I want to first remind people that a lack of a belief in something does not make it true because it lacks tangible evidence. My faith in God was a battle because of my intuitive, critical thinking that stemmed from my observations of people who claim to have faith. I attended a Christian high school. For a period of time, and even though I was not a believer, doesn't mean I wasn't observant and I didn't study the faith, which I did. Since I am a creation of God, I was blasted into a path that allowed my critical thinking. To be used as a strength to gain the faith that I didn't even believe existed. And what I mean by this is that I was offered a path in learning and experiencing a truth from being forced to s- sit still for enough time to read the Bible and, of course, a lot of other sources to gain information from the source and not interpretations from others. Now, I'm far from perfect, and I've learned that faith is really to not give up and keep pushing forward. False prophets or false teachers are everywhere. And I've realized that God has no interest in a blind faith. Because what does a blind faith do? So blind faith is going to allow those false prophets an ability to lure me in if I'm not able to see. Jesus was very specific on what to look out for and what it means to walk with him. And there's clear information on how to reach the unteachable and what it means to live a good life. I want to explain some things that I learned through my studies that included an in-depth form of critical thinking, how things changed for me, and biblical principles of living a good life, and what the Bible says about reaching the unreachable. The Bible, ironically enough, described me to a T and also had the answers that I was looking for. Now, stay with me as I first discuss how intelligence and power came into my life. And the title of my book starts with pain. So God allowed pain in my life so that I could ultimately learn from it. And I believe this. And it was in Psalms 119.71 that says, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Pain, failure, and misery are the stepping stones to success. Now, despite a lot of people's declaration that God doesn't inflict harm, I am going to disagree because of Isaiah 45:7, which says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all things. Why? Well, we don't always know the answer, but a plan has been set in motion for a purpose. But pain has created some powerful and effective teachers that are spreading love, empathy, and goodness that would never have happened if the tragedy hadn't happened in their life. Jody Barber, who I interviewed, is a great example of an advocate who has positively affected thousands of lives because of the death of her son. My pain started with a choice, but became uncontrollable. And I believe that God inflicted a darkness in my life so that I could be in the right place, at the right time, for me to knock. I searched everywhere for a purpose and meaning to life, except for where it was. I just wanted to feel good. My belief that drugs would provide this was a lie, as it destroyed my spirit, my real identity, morals, values, and my health. I killed that motherfucker was the first line in my book which describes that destruction. It was a priest who began my spiritual journey. I was at the right place at the right time because he asked the right question. Many atheists, as I was in that team, believe that faith in God is a weakness and believers are unintelligent because science and archaeology discredit the existence to a creator. And again, I'm going to disagree with this today and point out a few things that really opened my eyes. And I've always been someone who would overanalyze things and intellectually discredit the Bible to a point of them being impossible for me to believe. This actually worked in my favor after this priest that I mentioned paved a way for a real interest in me seeking God. The Bible, once my mind became intrigued by the information, showed me how ignorant I was and that intelligence and power were uniquely intertwined within faith. Albert Einstein, who was a famous and a well-known scientist, was proposed the very question by a young schoolgirl, and this is what she asked in a letter. Do scientists pray, and what do they pray for? So his response contains the essential form of his belief in God. And I'm going to quote what the letter said. Scientists believe that every occurrence, including the affairs of human beings, is due to the laws of nature. Therefore, a scientist cannot be inclined to believe that the course of events can be influenced by prayer, that is, by a supernaturally manifested wish. But he has the humility to admit that human understanding of these forces is limited and that widespread belief in an ultimate spirit persists in spite of scientific achievements. Einstein concluded with this statement, that scientists are led by science to a religious feeling, and this is what it says, but also, everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that some spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, one that is vastly Superior to that of man. In this way, the pursuit of science leads to a religious feeling of a special sort, which is surely quite different from the religiosity of someone more naive. Einstein does not deny the validity of this religious feeling, and so his view of science and a purely rational conception of existence cannot explain why humans care for truth and knowledge or tell a person how to live. Religion is the source for such motivation. So it would be a stretch to call Einstein an atheist, even though definitions of atheism can range from simple doubt in the supernatural to complete disbelief in God. Einstein's multiple references to spirit and reason and his conviction that science leads to a religious feeling makes it difficult to make that atheistic label stick. Intelligence and the power of knowledge began to alter my view of spirituality And the existence of god and it was science and it was these big thinkers that played a factor in this so stay with me as i explain what i mean i am solely giving this information for the purpose of showing how my mind thinks and analyzes or over analyzes things archaeology has uncovered an extinction of creatures that we refer to as dinosaur there appears to be a discrepancy in the six-day creation according to the Bible, because archaeologists have determined that non-bird dinosaurs lived between about 245 and 66 million years ago, and this was in a time that was known as the Mesozoic era. This was millions of years before the first modern human. One of the first answers that occurred to me as I was reading the Bible came from Ecclesiastes 8, 16-17, which said, I tried to understand all that happens on earth. I saw how busy people are, working day and night, and hardly ever sleeping. I also saw all that God has done, and nobody can understand what God does here on earth. No matter how hard people try to understand it, they cannot. Even if wise people say they understand, they cannot. No one can really understand. And so I realized at this time that i was 28 years old my mind was 28 years old and outside spirituality or religion the first step to change for me in recovery was that i am ignorant which socrates and i talked about this before ultimately defined as intelligence so not knowing things is what really taught me things The paradox to intelligence is to understand that I lack intelligence to gain intelligence. (laughs) So to even think that if a God exists that created everything, how would I even think that I could truly be able to contemplate and understand such a thing? Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. So the paradox to understanding something is to say that i don't understand (laughs) einstein's theory of relativity as well as the many other individuals that were involved in the formulation and studies of quantum mechanics provided me with some doubts in my atheistic mind on this question of age six days from an earthly perspective is 24 hours defined by the rotation of the earth so without the man-made calculation of time that was based solely on the sun coming up and the sun coming down what does this look like from the heavens many christians believe that the six days is a literal definition of our view of time but i wasn't sure which offered doubt about that question And some believe that the method of determining age by scientists is wrong, but again, human knowledge is limited. So follow me on this idea, all right? So if you were able to travel the speed of light in space, is time the same as here? I want people to understand where my mind went with this, which may have nothing to do with this or everything to do with this. Time dilation is defined as an actual difference of elapsed time between two events that are measured by observers, either moving relative to each other or differently situated from gravitational masses. So let's assume that you're able to instantly accelerate to 99.9% the speed of light, as well as instantly decelerate without killing yourself or destroying your ship or whatever you're in, which would probably result in your death. But traveling at 99.9% the speed of light for four years of Earth time means you'd experience a trip of about two weeks or 14 days. Yes, everyone on Earth will have aged four years and you will have aged two weeks. To imagine this dilation effect for this particular trip, you can think of it in one of two ways either time on the ship is moving 110 times slower than normal or you're traveling a distance 110 times shorter as far as space time is concerned and it's ultimately the same thing now of course communication from that distance means any signal you send assuming it was powerful enough to be heard and understood would take four earth time years to get back to earth so it's probable that you'd show up in the system do science for a year or so, likely sending some type of signal to Earth to let mission control know that you're alive, even if you can't transmit usable data, then return to Earth. You will have been gone for a total of nine Earth years and about 1.24 years your time. Now, if you can't wrap your brain around that, welcome to the theory of relativity. The deeper scientists have delved into the nature of nature. In an effort to comprehend how physical reality works and its fundamental levels and they too have found themselves perplexed they saw atomic particles move from one location to another with absolutely no lapse of time extensive rigorous experiments over the past century have confirmed that they do occur physicists know that quantum mechanics works but they don't know how Quantum physics teaches us that the world is full of surprises. And the pioneers of the field were so surprised by their discoveries that some of them have said, not only is the universe stranger than we think, it is stranger than we can think. The Bible reveals some things we find hard to understand. But nature reveals traces of the same designer. And let me bring you to another thing that questioned my think. Isaiah 4.22 says he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Archaeologists have dated the oldest known complete Hebrew Bible back to one thousand eight. CE, but you also have the Dead Sea Scrolls that contain fragments of the Hebrew Bible that date between 250 BCE and 68 CE. And the reason I bring this up is because of the information in Isaiah 4.22. And despite the idea that the earth was circle, and considering the time that this was written, stretcheth out the heavens as a current really intrigued me. Some scientific evidence suggests most galaxies are moving away from each other. And why are some galaxies moving away from each other? Well, the most obvious explanation is that the universe itself is expanding. Many astronomers and scientists have commented that if the universe was static, the gravitational pull among the galaxies could be rather nasty and the most likely outcome would be eventual collapse, along with probably a lot of other things. So why was this important to me? Well, if science has been the argument against the existence of God, my critical thinking ability started to question this based on science. I could spend weeks discussing information that I found intriguing in the Bible, and whether you believe in it or not, I will quote Jerry Garcia in reference to his statement on the Bible that it is the most inspirational book ever written. So stay with me now as I offer some insight into some answers of what is most important to this podcast, which is how do we reach the unreachable and how do My presentation at the Mount of Olives Church in Mission Viejo is not designed for the concept of quote-unquote preaching to the choir because I'm going to be talking to people that have faith. And obviously these are individuals that potentially go to this church. And so my title for this is something very unique. And my interest in doing this is to really help those maybe understand as Christians or the potential maybe duty that we have to go out and to help those that are suffering. I could talk about John sixteen thirty three. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Well, these are individuals that are going to believe this. I could also say 1 Corinthians 10, 13, when I'm speaking about people that are struggling or that temptations, that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Again, my focus is to work and help people that are suffering. And a lot of these people are not going to have faith in God. Many are atheists. And so I have to be careful when I work with people like this. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the reason why I have to be careful in this. And there is a biblical idea that I think is very important when we're discussing this. So how does a non-believer believe in John 16:33? And again, for me, it was pain, failure, and misery that provided the answer. As I mentioned before, it was a priest who ultimately asked the right question. And what that basically played out with was that this priest who I had met with while I was in custody and I'd requested to have a meeting with a spiritual advisor or a pastor or somebody, and a priest was the only person that was available. And the reason I did this was because being in and out of the 12-step program for so many years, I struggled, I relapsed, I got clean again, I relapsed. And I I thought that maybe since the solution that is presented in the 12 step program is this spiritual connection. And so I was willing to give it a shot. And that's what led me to put in a request to meet with somebody. And again, I met with a priest. And there's a long story behind this. And if you actually read my book, you'll kind of get a much more detailed explanation of this. But he asked me to pray. And the prayer that he asked me to pray was God, I don't believe in you, but if you are there, help me find you. And that was ultimately what started it for me. I didn't see a bright light. I didn't see a burning bush. I didn't hear God speak to me. But the one thing that really took place was that I all of a sudden had an interest. I had a strong interest and a desire to explore and to research and to understand. And so I am an advocate for those that are suffering. And giving a voice to those that have lost the battle. You know, we look at statistics. In 2017, it was estimated that 30.5 million Americans, age 12 and older, used illicit drugs. That's 11.2% of the population. Approximately 2 million adolescents, aged 12 to 17, were current users of illicit drugs, which represents about 7.9% of adolescents. In 2016, we had 63,632 Americans die of a drug overdose. 2017, we had 70,237 overdose deaths. 47,600 involved opioids. And then it was speculated that about 68,500 Americans died of an overdose in 2018. And so we don't have the statistics for 2019 or 2020, but I'm going to assume it's a big number. And none of us are immune. I've worked with and have known many who were convinced that this wouldn't happen to them, that they were invincible, that they knew everything. And sadly, some of those individuals passed away as a result of their overdose. The title that I was using for this presentation was Let's Get High. And the reason that I was bringing this up was that I held a belief that society and the church condemned pleasure. I read this in the Bible, James 5, 5, that you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. But then I look at Psalm sixteen eleven that says, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And what I came to realize when I was looking at this type of stuff was that pleasure is not the problem. The real problem lies in the immediate gratification concept of pleasure. That I want it and I want it now. And that's the pleasure that becomes extremely harmful. But it's not the pleasure in and of itself. God has defined his desire for us to experience eternal pleasures instead of the short term that I had always sought. And God wants us to feel good. And the reason I know this is that our bodies... And if you believe in God, we're created by God and we were created to get high. Physiological effects teaches us that. The mid part of our brain, which is a part of the brain that has to do with survival. The specific part that is called the nucleus accumbens is the pleasure center of our brain. This is the survival reinforcing center. When things feel good, we want to do more of it. And this is what leads us ultimately to temptation but our bodies were created to get high and highness, whether we call it pleasure or we call it high, I'm talking about the same thing. So let's get high and stay high. But what I had to learn was that drugs were not going to do this. Adaptation level theory says that any anytime that I do something like a drug for an extended period of time, my body is going to adapt to it to where I will no longer get pleasure from this. The natural high that I can experience in life is is the highness that will not go away. And it doesn't have all the side effects either that come along with methamphetamine or heroin or the other various drugs that people abuse. And America's response to the drug problem has been a problem. And I talked about this in a prior podcast. But the tactics that we've always used in society, and you got to ask yourself, have they been effective? Hatred, fear, incarceration just say no. Shame. Our federal government has been about reducing supply, stop drugs from entering the country, threats of execution for bringing drugs into the United States. What do those do? They increase the value. And this is why drugs are not going to go away. When laws prevent the use of something, the value increases drastically, which ultimately guarantees its availability. The people that are bringing it into this country are our kids, our neighbors, our coworkers? because the real suppliers understand the power behind people maintaining their own supply. It is the drug abusers who are caught, convicted, and sentenced to prison or death if that becomes the penalty. So how do we shut down a business? It's not by reducing supply. But if we want to shut a business down, we have to reduce demand. And so the question that I asked from the very beginning of this was how do we reach those that are invincible and ultimately know everything? And I want to tell you guys a little bit about my understanding of the things that I looked at and when I really researched the Bible. And the Bible has answers for this. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy— Think about such things. Paul does not tell them what to think, but instead for them to think about such things. One of the chapters in my book, I discuss the power and the ability to think for ourselves. The real power that we gain is once we can think for ourselves and not through the minds of others, because this is where it means something. I can tell you all day long that you have a drug problem, but it's not going to mean anything unless you believe it yourself. I can tell you that God is the way for you to find salvation. God is the way that's going to keep you clean and sober. God is the way that's going to remove that temptation. But if the person doesn't believe it, it's not going to work for them. You have to think for yourself and not through the minds of others. So how do we reach those that are invincible and know everything? Well, I want to bring you to Mark 3:14. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. This verse requires two concepts, which is truth and trust. For them to preach, they must believe. They must believe. And so this comes back to my idea that if I sit and I tell people that God is the only way, but if they don't believe me, they are going to perceive this as a lie. And any lie or a perception of a lie will disconnect that ability to work with these people. You've lost them. If I go into a high school and I teach people and I talk to people about drugs are bad, pleasure is wrong, you know, in any of this type of stuff, and you have people that are sitting in that audience that have tried drugs and their mind says, you know what, this person doesn't know what he's talking about. Drugs are good. Drugs feel good. What's wrong with them? I've just lost those individuals. There's other tactics that we have to use. When it comes to God, you cannot just throw it out there. You have to lead them. You have to sometimes create a sense of empathy. As a counselor and working with people over the years, I've spent days meeting with individuals and us just laughing and talking really about nothing, not discussing their problems, because I need to create a sense of trust. I need to create a sense of trust. in truth can sometimes be based on understanding their perception of what truth is. Once I can gain that trust, I can say anything. I can say anything that I want once I've gained the trust. Once I've built a rapport, I can say anything. And that's the power that we have to find as counselors. How do we reach those that are invincible and know everything? I want to bring you to Galatians 6, 2 to 3. Share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Empathy is the foundation to building rapport and the only way that we can ultimately reach someone. You are not that important. That's the humility that I have found. When I can ultimately say, yes, I have caused problems. Yes, I am a sinful individual. Yes, I do not do things right all the time. That is the foundation to building a rapport, which is empathy. And it's the only way that we are going to reach someone. I can't sit above. I can't be in a position where I'm requesting people to look up to me. I need to sit down at their level. And I need to be where they are and understand where they are to be able to have that ability to work with someone. How do we reach those that are invincible and know everything? Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This may not make sense from the perspective of what I'm trying to point out here, but I want to explain. He took upon himself the punishment that we deserve. God teaches us that an act of something that may not seem fair will have a purpose beyond our understanding. How is this concept even fair? God Himself becomes a man in Jesus Christ. God is sinless, but God becomes sin in Jesus. Jesus becomes sin to save us. And what is this? This is a lesson of seeing the world differently. Seeing the world differently. Advocacy and utilizing pain for the greater good can be extremely powerful. We have to start to see the world differently. As Christians, people that believe in God, it's time that we start seeing the world differently. So how do we solve a problem of this enormity? Romans 12, 6 through 8 is a powerful message. And it talks about gifts. That we have different gifts. And according to the grace given to each of us, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. A lot of people scream and complain about the homelessness problem. And a lot of people look at it from bad people or sick people. And in a sense, some of them are. And about 35% of them have substance abuse problems. 35%, 26% have mental illness. Some of them are unemployed and some of them have jobs, but they can't afford housing. I feel in my heart that it is my duty, and I do this cheerfully, to go out and help people that are suffering. When I look at Romans 12:6 through 8 if it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. And giving isn't always money. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, you do it cheerfully. Romans twelve six through 8 was something that really caught me. This podcast that I do, I'm really hoping that, that my message can get out and at least give somebody something or an interest, or a desire, no matter how small it is, to ultimately chain, or to at least look at it. I tell my students at the school that I work with, don't even necessarily believe what I believe. Don't believe what I say, but hopefully maybe it'll spark something in somebody to look into it themselves. And as in my book, and as I had mentioned this, don't think like I think, learn to think for yourself, but hopefully I can spark something and that's what really matters to me. I want to thank you for listening today. As I had mentioned, this is sort of a unique podcast for me because I'm very careful when I talk to people. I'm very careful on the words that I say when I'm working with clients. And I don't want to make sure that I'm not saying something that they're going to look at and say, oh yeah, this person's lying. I don't lie to them, but ironically enough, as I had done a podcast before, manipulation. And yes, as a counselor, there is some forms of manipulation that we must use to help people. So again, I want to thank you for listening. Please pay attention to my future podcasts. Please join my podcast. And I look forward to the next one. And please send me a message to my email, recoveryecosystem at gmail.com. And again, join my podcast, recoveryecosystem at podbean.com. Again, thank you for listening.